In one of their first attempts to claim the rights of citizenship, at least some freed people asked that the same methods be employed in their own burgeoning communities. As Downs notes, one group of newly emancipated men asked for humane quarantine facilities to be erected. Others asked for latrines to be moved away from tents in refugee camps but rather than help these communities, Downs writes, medical authorities often blame them for causing diseases to spread. Some of these debates took place in the context of the Freedmen's Bureau Congress had established the Bureau in 1865 as a federal entity meant to oversee the transition from slavery to freedom, including helping the newly emancipated become a paid workforce at the close of the war and ensuring that they were treated equally in judicial procedures. But elected officials were deeply divided over what this Bureau's responsibilities should be or whether it should even exist at all. And some of the disputes concerned health care. Some lawmakers, including a contingent of radical Republicans, believed it was the government's duty to provide medical assistance and other aid to freed people. Opponents of the Bureau including President Andrew Johnson and most Democratic members of Congress, argued that such assistance would only breed dependence, which would keep freed people from returning to the plantations where their labor was still needed. Black people were idle and depraved by nature, they said. And when it came to black infirmity, hard work was a better salve 
bene any medicine. Nevertheless, in 1865, the Bureau's Commissioner, General O. O. Howard, inaugurated its medical division, which in turn worked to establish a system of hospitals for the formerly enslaved across the post-war South. The program was unprecedented. The first federally funded health care system ever created in the United States, but its goals were never entirely humanitarian. The Bureau Director put in charge of the program aimed to provide just enough care to just enough freed people to maintain the plantation labor force. And from the start, the program's efforts were mired in anxiety over black dependency. Officials deployed a mere 120 or so doctors across the war-torn South, then ignored those doctors' pleas for personnel and equipment. They erected more than 40 hospitals, often in response to specific medical emergencies in specific jurisdictions, but shuttered most of them long before those emergencies had been resolved or the freed people's medical needs addressed. These contradictions reached their apotheosis in the fall of 1866 when white doctors in Charlotte, North Carolina discovered smallpox in their city's only hospital for freed people. Terrified and with no other means of preventing the disease from spreading, they did the only thing they could think of. They burned their own hospital to the ground. As the smallpox epidemic persisted and the death toll continued to rise, those who opposed providing any assistance to freed people developed a new and darker argument. Black people were so ill-suited to freedom that the entire race was going extinct and the best lawmakers could do was let nature take its course. Quote, 
No charitable black scheme can wash out the color of the Negro, change his inferior nature, or save him from his inevitable fate, end quote. Ohio Democratic Congressman Samuel Cox said in in 1865 on the floor of the House of Representatives. Several newspapers agreed, including the New York Times, which wrote that the, quote, mortality of the Negroes, end quote, continued to be very great and that, quote, dirt, debauchery, idleness are the cases of this inordinate mortality. One of the most eloquent rejoinders to this theory of black extinction came from Rebecca Lee Crumpler, the nation's first black female doctor. Crumpler was born free and trained and practiced in Boston but at the close of the war, she joined the Freedmen's Bureau and worked in the freed people's communities of Virginia. In 1883, she published one of the first treatises by a black writer on the burden of disease among black communities. Her book, which addressed black women specifically was intended to serve as a call and a guide for the newly emancipated, a message that they could and would survive even amid so much hatred and neglect. But Crumpler might as well have been speaking to Congressman Cox directly when she wrote that the nation's lawmakers, quote, seem to forget that there is a cause for every ailment and that it may be in their power to remove it. Those causes were external, she explained, not innate. Crumpler died in 1895, but her spirit lived on in an organization founded that same year, the National Medical Association, NMA, a pioneering organization of black doctors. Its first president 
Robert F. Boyd had been born into slavery through annual conferences and its own medical journal, the NMA became the leading voice on issues surrounding the health and medical treatment of black people and other disadvantaged groups. organization's journal wrote the NMA was quote conceived in no spirit of racial exclusiveness fostering fostering no ethnic antagonism but born of the exigencies of the American environment, end quote, and one of the best ways to improve health outcomes the NMA understood was through increased access to health care. At the start of the 20th century, the group began to argue for nationalized medicine. This argument, of course, went nowhere. In the decades following Reconstruction, the former slave states came to weld enormous congressional power through a voting block that was uniformly segregationist and overwhelmingly democratic. During the 1930s, Southern congressmen headed many of the key committees in Congress They used this power to ensure that New Deal measures did not threaten the nation's racial stratification. For example, as the Columbia University historian Ira Katznelson and others have documented, it was largely at the behest of Southern Democrats that farm and domestic workers who made up more than half of the nation's workforce at the time and an even higher percentage of the black workforce were excluded from New Deal policies, including the Social Security Act The Wagner Act, which ensured the right of workers to collective bargaining, and the FAIR Act, 
which ensured the right of workers oops and the Fair Labor Standards Act which set a minimum age and established the eight hour workday the same voting block ensured that states controlled crucial programs like aid to dependent children in the 1944 Servicemen's Readjustment Act, better known as the GI Bill in the South, especially state leaders then excluded black Americans from these programs through a variety of dubious mechanisms, including by creating onerous and subjective tests for determining need. Southern Democrats also secured local control of other federal health care programs under the mantra of, quote, states, close quote, rights. In 1945, when President Truman called on Congress to expand the nation's hospital system as part of a larger health care plan, they obtained key concessions that excluded black Americans both explicitly and implicitly and would shape the American medical landscape for decades to come. The Hill-Burton Act provided federal grants for hospital construction to communities in need and gave funding priority to rural areas, many of which were in the South and predominantly Black. But the law also put state leaders in charge of dispersing those funds and did not make any rule against segregating the new facilities. As a result, white communities were prioritized and black Americans in the rural South were left in the worst of circumstances, living in the least resourced part of the country and deliberately excluded from the exact programs meant to fix that problem. Employer-based health insurance, which took off in the wake of World War II, put yet another hurdle between African Americans and equitable health care. Quote, they were denied most of the jobs that offered coverage, close quote, says David 
Barton Smith, an emeritus historian of healthcare policy at Temple University. Quote, and even when some of them got health insurance, as the Pullman porters did, they couldn't make use of white facilities. Close quote. White doctors helped widen the gap even further. Professional societies like the American Medical Association, AMA, allowed black doctors to be excluded. Medical schools barred black students, and most hospitals and health clinics segregated black patients. The cumulative effect of these and other privations, correction, and other privations was to leave black Americans with statistically shorter, sicker, <coughs> sicker lives than their white counterparts. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but black communities of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s <coughs> were no more apt to accept these exclusions than their forebearers. Echoing the efforts of Crumpler, black women began a national community health care movement that included fundraising for black health facilities, campaigns to educate black communities about nutrition, sanitation, and disease prevention, and programs like Negro Health Week that drew attention to racial health disparities. One of the leaders of this effort was the NMA. By the 1950s, after a decades-long debate, its members were pushing aggressively for a federal health insurance program that would serve all citizens equally, a fight that put them in direct open conflict with their colleagues at the AMA. vehemently opposed to nationalized health care. Its members had already defeated two such proposals in the late 1930s and 40s 
with a vitriolic campaign whose slogans still reverberate today. They called the ideal socialist and un-American and warned of government intervention in the doctor-patient relationship. In the early 1960s, when proponents of a national health care plan introduced Medicare, the AMA quickly and aggressively revived those same arguments and doctors' wives were, quote, and doctors' wives organized, quote, coffee meetings, close quote, where they persuaded friends to write letters opposing the program, their effort, dubbed Operation Coffee Cup, secured an endorsement from Ronald Reagan, who in 1961 recorded an album with a gravely voiced speech warning that Medicare would lead to, quote, state, statism or socialism, close quote. But this time the NMA delivered a counter message of its own. Health care was a basic human right inextricably bound to racial equality. Quote, man is such a slow learner. In M.A. President William Montague Cobb said of the fight, but let us recognize our mistakes and remedy them without having to repeat the historical process again and again and again, end quote. Together, Medicare and Medicaid helped bring hospital segregation to a circuitous but definitive end. The 1964 Civil Rights Act outlawed segregation for any entity receiving federal funds in Medicare and Medicaid soon placed every hospital in the country in that category. The program also secured reliable health care for whole swaths of the population, namely low-income and elderly Americans, for the first time, as has happened so often in our history, Black struggles for equality resulted in greater rights for all Americans in its fight to secure health care for Black Americans. The NMA helped to dramatically 
improve access for citizens across the racial and socioeconomic spectrum. Many forces have prevented the United States from achieving universal health care, including a failure to properly regulate the trillion-dollar health care industry and a near-total unwillingness to grapple with the ethics of for-profit medicine, but the role of racism and the legacy of slavery cannot be denied. The same arguments about dependency and socialized medicine, equity and humane and human rights that thwarted the Freedmen's Bureau Medical Division in Crumpler's time and blocked universal health care during Cobb's time have echoed down to the present day. People of color continue to suffer most from the failure to resolve these arguments. Black and Latino Americans still have the highest uninsured rates in the country and still shoulder a disproportionate share of the nation's poor health outcomes. But they are not alone. After all the debates and elections and bills and lawsuits, millions of Americans of every race, ethnicity, and political persuasion still don't have health insurance of any kind, and millions more are still forced to ration crucial medications or to forego critical procedures or to choose in some other way between receiving health care and meeting other essential needs. In the end, everyone is harmed. for Sylvia Plath inspired by her poem Tulips by Wanda Lea Brayton Bouquet for Sylvia Plath Ignore the loud stretching of flowers Sylvia, their breath aching toward an open sky, their fragrance will evaporate soon enough to forget how vivid they were. Remember their tender roots instead, shuddering beneath the bitter soil 
that rages, cracking under first frost's leaden foot. They retreat into the dusky dark, their sinews yearning for warmth that wanes. Ah, but there are still seeds whispering in the yard, singing slowly those ancient secrets of spring. The blooms will wilt as they are wont to do. It is their duty to fade from trembling fingers' grasp. The petals will fall, perhaps to be savored and saved for potpourri, a scent that lingers long after the gift was given and gone. The mandates of survival require us to tend our gardens well, to remove unwanted weeds, and thrust our hands into this daunting dirt. Our stems are stronger than any wind that shivers through our lives. There will always be more flowers to come. It is only these moments alone that are few and fierce. Fledglings have fallen. Fledglings have fallen from their nest. A song in their ancient rubied throats lost to the descending darkness of an unmitigated demise. Too soon they perished before they felt the rise of primordial wind beneath their nascent wings. They instinctively trusted the strength of the bow they breathed upon not understanding the power of an oncoming storm. Their parents trapped under turned leaves until it passed. And they could pursue home again. When they arrived, 
in the emptiness you left behind. Your music was muted by savage fear. They dared not look for you, knowing your tiny hearts had become a long, strange melody they could not hear. An odd mapping of blood on stones below their eyes. A poem titled Language inspired by the novel Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert poem by Wanda Leah Brayton titled Language Moments may lodge in the tightening of our throats separated from sound only a murmur comes or a moan a sudden silence speaking volumes never written or recorded in any language save that of a heart swelling bursting its banks stunned into a precious pause that has no definition no borders etched on any map. They can be seen in languishing gestures coiled inside cloaked shadows caused by a trembling hand that reaches out stops midway between here and where it meant to go, then bravely goes on, gathering those same shadows into something that finally makes sense. They cannot be discerned under a sterile microscope, nor viewed through a stargazer's eyes. They must be experienced as an individual fragment of time that ceases to move, seen only through the latticed whisper of a butterfly's stilled wing, a portion of song given only to you, only by the 
glistening smile of a unanimous universe. There, right there, just before you blink. A poem titled Norma Jean, inspired by Marilyn Monroe's poetry. Written by Wanda Leah Brayton. Norma Jean, your sinuous vines were meant for more than bearing fruit, for gathering wind in your leaves curled against the storms. The soil shuddered beneath your feet, swaying within the onslaught of unrepentant tides. You were golden, a kinetic glow surrounding your skin too many longed to touch and tear. When the wind grew too fierce, you burrowed beneath your slow blankets of flame, surging, trembling, still We are sustained by your tragic warmth. Restlessly drink from your wild vintage. A poem titled Unfeathered. A short poem by Wanderlea Brayton. Flight is precious to those who are earthbound. We see this unending sky and covet wild wings we do not have attached to our mortal frames Yet still, our souls soar beside the fragile bird who lingers aloft. Steadfast, we long to seek those radiant realms where moonlight swirls without falling. We drift beside quiet streams and imagine the sea. We are creatures of gravity soliciting the stars. A short poem titled Semblance. Like the sky 
tenebrous. I split, spilling remnants of song. Wet bouquets gathered into my arms. Dense language, reminiscent of loam. Categories defy mirrors, soliloquy. Labels, obsequious without a discerning glance for what comes seeking wind, finding flame instead. A short poem, Songs of Neruda, inspired by an excerpt from the poem to many names by Pablo Neruda. Flowers remember with tender bitterness the wild and willful pleasure you found in a moment composed of only roots and stones neglecting their fragile sense with your broad hand your brimming eyes they have forgiven you with songs of unfolding silk dusky petals drift fragrances slowly across somber soil embracing you now thank you for listening The audacity of hope to find hope in the midst of despair is a sacred thing born of wings we cannot remember we once had not knowing We will have them again. To wrench joy from the jaws of unthinking degradation is a triumph beyond compare. To find solace in the swirling abyss of sorrow is as courageous and act as we might perform. To seek beauty in a massive pile of scattered dreams is cradling a tender innocence that cannot die. To find sanctuary within a crevice of noise is 
a display of unconscious heroism to create within the rubble of destruction is elaborating upon the tenets of bravery to have faith when the sky is crashing around you is to demonstrate the strengths of being more than merely human to rise again from the grief that befell you is to succeed in gathering wisdom to gather wisdom from such agony is a sacred thing born of wings. A poem written by Wanda Leah Brayton. The Audacity of Hope. rising above mountainous ranges with purpose and with feasts of pure song. I do not love you when the fire wanes on the hearth, its glow fading deep into night. Final sparks ascending into the realm of innocent dream. No, I embrace your warmth as we lay curled together, fluttering flames that will not cease to illuminate our surroundings with sweeter solace. Scattering stars. I will not love you as the sun claims its position among bellowing clouds, filtering sepia light where shadows 
would shiver among the trees, petals drifting as fruit becomes ripe and falls into our outstretched hands, a gentle harvest unimaginable to those who weep in their empty abodes alone with memories. I cannot love you with mere vagaries or evolutions, for they could not contain the vastness of this utter delight, this burrowing beneath my bones that causes my heart to sway within its fragile folds where life burgeons forth. No, I cannot regale you only with hands or with words, for they could never define these elegant sonatas you etch upon my very soul from the simple complexities of your gaze.